Welcome to Brave New Words. I'm your host, Ed Fortune, and I'm here with... I'm Ross. I'm Del. I'm Anne. Brave New Words is brought to you in association with Starburst Magazine. You can find that on the shelves of all good bookshops and also all good newsagents and also some slightly naughty newsagents, but not too naughty. You can also find us via the Wonky Spanner, uh, which is a website that does all sorts of wonderful podcasty things. And obviously you can also hear us on fabradiointernational.com. But you know all of this because you're listening to this show right now. So coming up, we're going to talk about uh, all things Terry Pratchett. Across the world. 24 hours a day. So, yes, I have a book in my hand. It's not. I have a very pretty book in my hand because. It's very pretty. Because, yet again, the Folio Society. Hello, Folio Society, all lovely people. Uh, I have thrown books at us. And I'm going to pass this round. Uh, the team. And we're going to quickly talk. Well, we're not going to quickly. We're going to probably go on, on about this for at least 40 minutes. Uh, we're going to talk about the, the works of Terry Pratchett. So, i pass that book. So, more is not the first Terry Pratchett book. No. But as far as a lot of people are concerned, it is. It's the one where we... Basically, we started to have the voice that then became synonymous with Discworld, wasn't it? Like, Colour of Magic and Tripping the Light Fantastic are definitely Discworld novels, but there is a different tone there. It's written differently. It's kind of like the cutting the teeth, isn't it? But it felt like Mort was the one where it went... We've got this now. This is this the one is where, where death says, "Oh bugger!" Yeah, um, <laughs> it's it's the it comic. Lovely. Is not the, the third or the fourth? Because equal rights is before it, isn't it? And equal rights is. Uh, I mean, shall we? Do we have to do a synopsis of what the Discworld is for for people who don't know the Discworld? Could do. We could also just talk about how soft this book is. It feels lovely. <laughs> you can't feel it on radio but I'm holding it near the mic for you so there we are the Folio Society do uh, we've talked about the Folio Society before but the Folio Society do collector's editions of books and they did a very limited collector's edition of Mort which you will not be able to get for love nor money uh, having tried both and <laughs> and um, oh. the uh, the slightly less rare edition which is quite pricey um you can get your hands on and it's out available to the general public and it's got that lovely kind of soft fluffy cover mm. effect I want to say I, it's not it's not good it's, it's that kind of like soft um, is it like it's it's? I don't think it is actually moleskin but it's that moleskin kind of feel isn't it like brushed suede kind of feeling that, that suede covery mm. style thing and it's full of plates and it's very pretty but I think mm. most of our most of our memories of the... We're talking about books as things rather than books as books. That's a bit weird. But I think most of our recollections of um, Terry Pratchett books will be get, just getting um, a paperback in our hands. Yeah. As far as I... I was stunned when I first encountered the Terry Pratchett book as a hardback because I didn't... I was like, they come in hardbacks, what? Uh, my, my copy of Mort was given to me by, by my sister 
who uh, wanted me to read proper books, so she gave me Terry Pratchett. I'm not sure what the logic was there, but uh, proper books. She gave, she gave me a copy of Pride and Prejudice, so I was like, I've already got this. And then she gave me Terry Pratchett, and I was like, hey, Terry Pratchett. Because um, I think I'd read Equal, I'd already read Equal Rights, so she gave me more, and I was like, ooh. Um, but yes, right, so Discworld. Um, yes. Terry Pratchett is uh, certainly not with us anymore, fantasy author. Uh, wrote a vast number of books, mostly set in a Discworld. Uh, Discworld is very, very broadly speaking, a comic fantasy setting where he uses the tropes of fantasy of the world of fantasy to um, uh, talk about the real world and life itself. Yeah, uh, there's, absolutely. There's lots of different kind of, even though it's one series, it's not. It's the whole, all, almost all mm. of the books are standalone. Yeah, that you don't need to read anything chronologically but they are they are common characters well as I yeah. said when I first got into it the, there was enough novels out there that I thought right well I'm presumably I have to read you start reading these in order yeah so you, yeah you don't I've predominantly read them in order but not completely I think I read oh, I read like the amazing Maurice and his educated rodents like I think I'd only was only about halfway through the Discworld series when I jumped. Um, again, like Carpe Jugulum, I think was maybe the sixth or seventh Pratchett like te- Discworld novel that I read. So, uh, as Brave New Works is dedicated to bringing new books as they as and when they come out, what came out in 1987, so yeah. only a little bit behind the times. Mort is, is a whole year younger than I am. <laughs> that's, that's it. Um, really, I, I feel terribly old. I think I got the book for Christmas <laughs> when it came out. Um, but yes, uh, so uh, the plot of Mort is it's about a chap called Mort, sort of. Um, sort um, of. But it also features the character who, the only character who's in all of the Discworld novels, which is Death. Mm. Death is Death is always. Uh, um, Susan as well. Uh, isn't Su- it? Susan's in it. Yeah. Susan's not in this one. Is she not in this one? I, a very small Susan might be in it. It's, I, th- I thought there was a very small Susan. I think there might be a very small spoilers for a book that you've probably already read, but there's a very small Susan. <laughs> yeah. Uh, is it, does it go to her school or something? Isabel's in it, which is a death's adopted daughter. Oh! Isabel, it's not yeah, Susan, Susan, it's Isabel. Susan's mother. Yes. So, uh, slight spoilers, I suppose. You see why I got a bit confused. No, not really. That means nothing. But okay, so <laughs> death, death is you know, the anthropomorphic personification of the force of death. Um, quite fancy a holiday, really, so he gets an apprentice. And Mort is looking for a new job. He, he doesn't want to go into the family form, form, farming business, and you know, he goes to a local hiring fair in the hope that he finds a, a new job, and um, bumps into death, who thinks, you know, why not? I, I could do. It. Uh, so it gets an apprenticeship in the ushering schools into the next world. He's, I seem to recall his dad thinks he's being an undertaker. Yeah. Because he tries to explain what the job is and he's like, oh yeah, that's an undertaker. That's a very, very fine profession. That, that will do. Well, um, because unless unless you are intimately associated with the, the process of death, you tend not to see him. You, you tend to see what you think you ought to be seeing. So, I love... I worked this out very quickly, but I love the way that witches, the reason why witches can see death in the Terry Pratchett world. Witches in Terry Pratchett's world are a combination between generally mystic forces 
and midwives and mm. a representation of the role of strong women in society. Yeah. Uh, I, is that an easy way yeah. of describing this? You know, why why society needs to have strong feminine uh, balance? Um, or you know, there's probably a better way of putting that, but still that. Uh, so with the reason witches can see death is because it's part of their job. They're, they're midwives and they're nurses and they're doctors essentially mm. and they, they run around and they they, you know, they provide palliative care to, to, to the elderly, of course they can see death you know, they're slightly mystic of course, uh, there's, there's a wonder so anyway, what becomes death's apprentice <laughs> it's, a, it's a magical thing, I mean wizards can see death as well, it's just that wizards tend to be the more academic removed from society types who just think well he'll, you know, he'll turn up, he'll give me a little bit more notice than most people but the way the, the way that wizards do the wizards thing is they cast a spell and then you know they wake up when they they're going to die and that's because wizards are curious and really it's a really stupid thing to do it's like when am I going to die uh, oh ass <laughs> it's not ass oops but yeah it's a, it's a you can, he's a magical being and, and wizards are the sort of people who are like I need to be able to detect death just in case he's after me sort of thing so whereas witches are just like yeah whatever it's part of the natural life cycle it's not mm. something we particularly welcome but we have to get on with it but more ends up with death's powers so I think it's the first time the first time he takes him to a um, a big banquet doesn't he and there's a huge banquet and time slows and this king's about to be killed and Mort tries to stop it from happening even though he's been told not to interfere and it's a test Death wants to make sure that he's got a decent human being and not some sort of monster involved. Uh, and you know, Mort cocks it up terribly. He's given a second chance, um, and then they go back on well, back on Death's horse, back to Death's place, which is all dark because it's Death. And uh, Mort discovers that that Death's horse is very much alive. Binky, Binky, very much alive. He tried the skeletal horses, but he, they, the bones kept falling off, and it's really difficult to keep them wired on, that sort of thing. So, living things have advantages in certain respects; they don't fall apart. And it turns out that Mort, Mort's main purpose for being there is the disadvantage of living things. They're, they are stables, and the stables smell. <laughs> yes, and there is a shovel, um, and then that's one of his jobs. Uh, can can can. You the, the pretty, pretty oh, shiny but I want it I was like I, it was nice to hold it the precious I'm just I'm just pulling out the place this is an excellent radio again um, yeah we're going to show you a picture these will be on the website you can also find them on the Folio Society website um, but in the meantime use echo location you'll pick it up yeah here, here is a picture of death fishing oh. I've forgotten that death goes fishing there's also a Reaper Man isn't there with later on in the show where he, he actually quits his job and tries to tries to live as a mortal. He's not really given much choice in that one because he's fired. Well, no, he's told yes, he's told he's going to die, which for death is even more interesting. But uh, we also meet, so we meet Isabel, who's Death's daughter, who's not the gothic beauty that she's supposed to be because it's Terry Pratchett, and Terry Pratchett <laughs> likes to. So so Mort falls in love with the boss's daughter, uh, and there's that whole kind of. But it takes a while because he also fall, he falls in love with someone else first, which is why he gets himself in a mess. Because he tries to not kill people, mm. tries to not do his job, 
and that causes a series of consequences that basically cause all sorts of messes and all sorts of yeah. problems. It's the chain reaction, isn't it? One person dies, so this one whole awful thing happens for a great deal of good to happen in the world and all of this sort of thing. And it's yeah, as a as as an early example of Discworld, it's really interesting because I don't think Terry Pratchett would have written a book like that later on in his he would have written a book about death, but I don't think he would have cost the he would have had the, the time aspect and the you know, one uh, a princess being that important a death of a princess being that important to the lives of people as mm. a plot. Um certainly by the time he gets to Vimes and he's talking about the the city and people and by the time we meet Vetinari, that's totally not in his idiom. Yeah. But isn't that the point about writers is that they will evolve what they write and how they write and the themes that become important to them as they develop as a writer. So I, I would I don't know, but I would guess that his initial view for Discworld and what it would become was utterly different to what it was by the time he got to the end. Yes, very much so. I mean, the idea the idea that this is the princess's time to die and that there's predestination um, is very much not what the, 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 the his later works are like. Mm. Um, and I think it's because Terry evolves as a person, like changes as a person and becomes... I mean, the book's become staunchly more, I want to say left-wing, but it's not quite the... Staunchly more humanist. Yeah. In approach. And this is, I think he's still kind of coming out of that shell, to mm-hmm. an extent. Because equal right to the book before, which is about uh, a woman becoming a wizard. How dare she? Sort of, sort of a, a vibe. And we were introduced to witchcraft and we were introduced to the wizards and yeah. given a slightly better idea as to what it is. I always felt that Equal Rights didn't quite fit. Okay. You know what I'm saying? It just doesn't quite. It's very half formed compared to that. It's a good book, but it's very half formed. It's, it kind of felt like the. Because f- it's the first journey outside of Angmore book kind of isn't it like, I know that obviously Colour of the Magic goes here there and everywhere but it's a rinse wind novel um, and so there's always going to have that basis in Unseen University this was the first one in Lankra wasn't it um, but then obviously that, that then be, moves on to Unseen University but that's the first story of like country and what happens when we put country in the city it's interesting actually because when you think about it Rincewind is a, a, an ongoing character in the Discworld novels, and he's a rubbish wizard who would rather who is a, a great hero because he's run away from great many dangers, uh, and he believes in running away very very much. He doesn't really cast any spells because he can't because he's a rubbish wizard. Uh, <laughs> but he's got a hat. He's got a hat. It says wizard. Therefore, you've got to take him seriously as a wizard. Uh, and he's a clever man, and because he's a clever man, he runs away a lot. And the colour of magic. The first two books in that, uh, like Fantastic and the Colour of Magic, or Whistle Stop Tour of the World. But Rincewind is a character, there's not much to it. Rincewind and the Tourist Tooflower, mm. there's not much to them. You know, Tooflower is a tourist, Rincewind is a, is a slightly weaselly wizard. The world has dragons in it sometimes, and all sorts of other weird things that you can go and encounter. And um, Cohen the Barbarian. And Cohen the Barbarian. Yeah. And lots of characters that he comes back to later are introduced. 
but it's a whistle stop tour of the world and by complete look because Terry Pratchett did not plan this by complete luck he kind of introduces you to to the world itself and then doesn't go back to exploring that world for a very long time because he just concentrates on the people which yeah. the people make the world anyway so it works very well so so what are we saying here are we saying that 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 the book pretty book pretty looks off book pretty oh the book is very pretty and it's got it's got a slip kind of thing yeah you don't see that very often um but yeah but book pretty but the reason why the book pretty exists is because the story is important um and it is good and because Pratchett writes in archetypes doesn't he like there's so many archetypal characters and everything he creates. Um, they're always going to be powerful and they're always going to have that message because, like you said, despite being based in a fantasy world, they're telling real stories and talking about principles that are important in the real world. Um, so that's why it deserves to have a book pretty. I'm just I'm, I'm just looking for my notes, and uh, here's an interesting random thing. Um, so, the Color Magic was broadcast in serial parts in the eighties on Woman's Hour, and then they did a Woman's Hour. Yeah. Okay. Then they did Equal Rights. Yeah. You hadn't written Equal Rights before that had happened, but then they broadcast it on Woman's Hour. There was a massive pop- rise in popularity, so possibly. No, but yeah, I would there's, speculate. There's, there's a, I'd better write this one then. There's probably a connection. I still thought it was Im- important. I don't think it necessarily doesn't fit. I just think it was yet another kind of cutting of the teeth, really, wasn't it? It was the same world, but a different part of the same world, a different idea and different characters. Um... And different characters that are also, you know, very important from the start and had to be done right. That they have to be done correctly. I mean, there's lots of there's lots of online guides that will try and explain to you what the various books are. Mm-hmm. And I've got to admit, my favourite ones are the ones that don't fit. <laughs> Some of my favourites are the ones that don't. So, so going through it, really kind of bouncing. Uh, in a kind of bounty so we've touched on Rincewind who was a coward but we haven't talked about luggage <laughs> I love luggage who can explain what luggage is oh uh, luggage is Rincewind's luggage um, luggage is a trunk with hundreds of feet that runs everywhere and follows Rincewind even though Rincewind doesn't want or like him because he's a evil bastards <laughs> in his idle moments this is what runs through runs away from the most yeah um, but luggage is made of sentient wood isn't he like, sapient powered yeah it's, it's sapient powered it's like say, sentient powered sapient powered um, yeah rinsewind is magic and is full of different dimensions <laughs> Not Rincewind. Luggage is magic and full of different dimensions. No, no, fair, Rincewind might be as well. Uh, yeah. Rincewind is also technically magic. Technically, in, in she gritty... says with little air bunnies. <laughs> <laughs> and wizards spelt with two Zs. <laughs> grudgingly, grudgingly, the forces of magic agree that he's magic. And I suppose he is full of dimensions because of plot, because he gets... Yeah. So... And he, he does meet death on a number of occasions. Death has a complicated hourglass of Rincewind, 
because Winsford keeps not dying. <laughs> oh, it's you again. <laughs> It'd be so much easier if you just died. <laughs> but luggage is just this big, grumpy trunk that follows him everywhere. But like, if you've got people that you don't want anymore, you can put them in luggage and he'll just put them in a dimension somewhere. But and then they're gone. Rinsman never because when you think about it, as a magic item, luggage is amazing. If you gave if you gave uh, luggage to a tabletop role player, or you know someone playing World of Warcraft or something along those lines, they'd abuse their heck out. It's like okay, we'll open them up and we'll drain this ocean because <laughs> technically you could do that with luggage. Yeah. You could you, you could do all sorts of things. Uh, you could yes. You, so if it meant to a, to a tabletop game, as in you know. I can store my board collection in it and carry it everywhere. That'd be awesome. Yes. So I, I, I didn't realise you mean in 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 you in in game. You could, te- <laughs> you could technically live in, in luggage. And then tell getting luggage, out would be tricky. Telling luggage, tell luggage to go somewhere for you, and then just turn mm. up. It'd be fantastic. You'd have like a massive mansion house. It'd be a bit hard inviting people around like to the tea, I suppose, because you'd be like, okay, so what I need you to do is go up the street corner and then climb inside this box. It's not really a good start for an invitation, but. And also, you'd have to really hope luggage liked them, because if he didn't, he probably wouldn't let them out again, and he'd probably open himself up into a different place, and they'd end up in a world of terrible things. Luggage does have teeth. Yeah. And a tongue. And a big tongue. Yeah, but yeah, because it's Rinsman, he's not like, I only use this as a thing. It's like, no, this is a horrifying creature. Yeah. And the thing is, he's made, because he's made out of sapling pearwood, sapling pearwood is meant to be this, this incredibly rare wood that wizards if they can get like a one's worth they're doing really well because it's really good for magic and some of the best wizards in the world will have a staff a thin staff made out of sappy and pearwood and Vince Wind who is the least respected wizard of them all because he's not a very good wizard mm-hmm. um, has an entire luggage a chest made out of this incredibly rare material what <laughs> Why would you make a box out of it? Oh, it's chasing him. Right, we understand. Uh, because Pratchett. Let's be honest. If it, they do explore the world in later books, and there is another continent where they... Because it was originally Two Flowers luggage. Yeah. They do encounter... When we look at Two Flowers realm, we do encounter more luggages. And Rinterwind is equally terrified of those. It's just that <laughs> his is one belongs to him and therefore terrifies him more. Whereas the others aren't interested in him. So, the first books are about Rintwin. The first two books are about Rintwin. We also learn a bit about the wizards and how wizards work. Mm-hmm. I think he's in equal rights. I thought the point uh, was that wizards didn't work. Well, they tried not the wizards to. do like as little as possible. True. If, if you had all the power at your fingertips to alter reality, you would do nothing. He said. Hopefully, hopefully you would do nothing rather than trying to alter reality because that sounds like work. It's like here's the power of God. Oh great! I'll have a biscuit, please. <laughs> you know, it's not. If you lived in this world, you'd be a wizard, wouldn't you? Yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. I'd be a great wizard. <laughs> banquets and food. Um, so the obviously you'd books. have to kill people to get promotion. No, that's exactly why you don't... stay on the lower rooms. Yeah, I think it would be one of the happy like backbenching academics. <laughs> That's why, because, okay, so we'll get on to the wizards, so there's, <laughs> there's an entire, because we're introduced to the wizards in really in the first three books, but only we're introduced to the witches in the first three books as well, but only in kind of yeah. passing, because he hasn't really, he, has, he doesn't start telling stories about the wizards 
for some time and then, then he kind of gets into it. So we've got the Unseen University which in itself is a joke because the, the, the College Invisible do we have to talk about the Illuminati? Well, you've got the College Invisible and you've got like that kind of mystic you've got a tradition of occultism you have things like the Invisible College and these sort of ideas and it's all meant to be hidden knowledge so Terry Pratchett with his raw wit and his humour is like let's not have the Invisible College let's have the Unseen University uh, and it's a huge university building in the city of Antmore. Does someone want to explain Antmore what? It's it's London. Slash sort of... I've always seen it as a... European capital city. Yeah, I was about to say, like, it's a bit Budapesty, isn't it? Because, like, Budapest is two cities. It's Buda and Pest. And Ankh-Morpork is the same, isn't it? One side of the river is Ankh, and one side of the river is Morpork. But, um, but if you want to cross the river, you can just walk. Cause yeah, it's just, that kind of river. Yeah, it's just goop. Yeah, but um, if you look at the maps, the the river is plainly the Thames. Yeah. <laughs> so it's, it's a big hive of humanity and a quintessential city. And a lot of the stories are set, are set somewhere in Atmorepork because it's... What do they call it? It's not the Big Apple, it's the Big Wakuni, it's something like that. It's the Big Wakuni, and Wakuni's an enormous rotting fruit fruit that you can find. That smells and is not as delicious as you think it might be. Because uh, the people of the disc world are slightly sardonic in approach, but you've got the you've got the unseen university, which is this huge building, which occasionally is mostly in this dimension, uh, and you you have the wizards themselves, who um, when you first meet them, there's one arch chancellor who quickly dies because that's how you get a job, you kill take them, it promotion, take it promotion. Um, so we go through a number of arch chancellors. We eventually get to you know the Red Cully, who's the yeah. the one who stays there. Um, I'm just looking at this thing, and it's like someone's claiming that the library in the Unseen University is is a bit like the the Bodleian. And I'm like, no, it's not. No, uh... it's not at all. That's that's ridiculous. That's just sort of going. I like this library. I think it's like the one in the Terry Pratchett books. No, it's not. It's, though the Unseen though the Unseen University library is probably extremely pretty. Uh, I would not want to get lost there. I would love to get lost in, in the Bodley and it's a fantastic library. But um, yeah, no. <laughs> yeah. Uh, apparently, Ankh Morpork is similar to Tallinn and Central Prague, but with elements of 18th century London, 19th century Seattle, and modern New York City. So, so we'll get back to the library in a moment. So we've done Ridcully. Ridcully is so most wizards have big pointy hats because that's how they know you're a wizard. Yep. Some wizards use their big pointy hats to store sandwiches. Sensible. Because that's it's a little bit Paddington Bearish. It is, well, Paddington Bears are wizards as well, obviously. Obviously. Uh, just, and all of these people sound very sensible, I don't... Some of them store booze, don't they? Well, but, but, you can put a bottle in it. Wizards have very easy. Well, Ridcully well, uses, uses his hat. He's got a compartment. So he uses it to store, store a stiff drink and a very small crossbow in case he wants to go hunting. Because he's that sort of person. He's essentially, you know, his his wizard's cloak sounds essentially like a barber jacket. He's that sort of. He, I think he's drawn from that fine, fine tradition of English gentlemen who who know exactly what's going on, decided that they know exactly what's going on, said that they don't really care, but know enough just to you know stay alive, and are barking mad. Well, um, once they've decided what's going on, that's clearly what is going on, and the, any you know evidence to the contrary is. Sort of a figment of whoever's talking to him's imagination. 
So if they know what's good for them. So we have the bursar, <laughs> who handles the finances for the university and is therefore barking mad, and has his dry, uh, dry oh, drug fills. Um, the dean, who believes this is should be far more of an action adventure than it actually is. <laughs> what's the? Is it? Is it arch wangler? Senior, Senior Angler, uh, the <laughs> lecturer in recent rooms, I think. There's Yeah, there's a lot of academic titles. And also there are a lot of lectures which take place in room 2B, only partly because it's a wizard's academy, partly because none of the wizards do any work, and partly because the students of the university are also expected to learn that they don't, wizards don't do any work. Lectures happen in theory in room 2B, but nobody's ever found it. Isn't there an entire quantum theory to do with lectures? Is it? The lecture exists and doesn't exist at the same time. But as long as somebody does, accepts that it does exist, they don't have to attend it. The fact you don't open the door, you don't know if it exists. It's, the lecture is either happening or not happening, depending on. on Important wizarding knowledge, though. <laughs> That's just you know, just thinking about it as an education. <laughs> so, so those are the visits, and obviously we've not touched on the librarian. Uh, he was an orangutan. Um, he wasn't an orangutan, and then he became an orangutan. But he kind of prefers it that way because he can break your arms off. So that's the business. The, the... Oh. Well, we're trying to very bravely trying to do the entire. There's like fifty books. Yeah, there's a lot so of characters to cover. Um, so that's book one, two, three, four. What's in book five? <laughs> <laughs> so let's see. Um, we've got. We've done. We've kind of done the wizards. We've kind of done an end. The witches, I suppose, the next obvious. Yeah. Um, so. So I think that's how it would work for me. It would be the wizards, the witches, the watch. They're the kind of factions that are important so in how I view this world. When we first when we first meet the the, the witches properly, it's a sort of it's a it's a Macbeth parody. Really, yes. isn't it? <laughs> when shall we three meet again? I can do next Tuesday. Yeah. <laughs> used to be uh, a lot more organised than actual witches are. They have a discussion about like who's bringing the casserole next time or something, <laughs> don't they? <laughs> but so, whereas wizards have incredible magical power that they don't use, and every once in a while they can do very impressive spells, especially if they're trying to impress someone. But mostly they avoid throwing fireballs at things and exploding things. They can do all of that, but it makes a mess. But it makes a mess. It's inconvenient. Yeah. Uh, it's awkward. And, they can do it, but no. Uh, witches don't very, 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 very rarely throughout work of mystical power. Mm. Witches are kind of very Mother Earth. Like, it's a lot of the fact that power actually exists everywhere. Um, and... To an extent, like they, they, they don't hold with magic, do they? It's like there's none of this That's magic the... rubbish. Like, no, this is the power, and this is what yeah. we do and how we work. Fireballs are the sort of showy things you can do with it, but there's there's, there's different ways of getting someone to change their mind. You know, just yeah. implying that if know, if, if you don't do this, something nasty will happen to you. It might be just as effective as actually causing something nasty to happen to you. If a wizard wanted to stop a king. He would turn up. He would teleport in front of the king's court and go, "Bam!" I have a fireball, and everyone would be like, "Oh, that's not nice with the wizards." And then you know that would be it. Whereas a witch would turn up, say something, the the, the, the king would listen, 
king would try not to listen. Then everyone else around the king would listen. And then the king would realise he's made a terrible mistake, <laughs> feel a bit sheepish, and then go off and fix it. Because it's, it's all headology, isn't it? But but they are magic. There's a wonderful... Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, they have broomsticks, which they are mostly terrified of. They have they have this could because obviously there's a connection between witchcraft and sex and they have the, there is this wonderful approach route that Derry takes along lines of where they basically point and giggle. So you have Nanny Og. So we have Granny Ravarax who is who is head witch because everyone's too scared to tell her that she isn't. Uh, and everyone just assumes she is basically. Everyone's like, Oh no, she's obviously in charge and then they say, Are you in charge? She's like, no, I'm not in charge but here's my opinion on this. <laughs> <laughs> And you know the, the default kind of leader of, of of witchcraft, and she's very practical, and she's very sensible, and she's formidable, mm. and terrifying, and she's very very aware that there is balance of nature, and she's part of nature, and nature is vicious and dark and red, and all it would take is one bad day for her to be exactly everything she doesn't want to be. So she doesn't. Every day she wakes up tries to do the best to make the world a slightly less awful place. Nanny Og, on the other hand, mm. is mostly about where is where is Granny looks at a, a large phallic monument and goes, well that exists and gets on with it. Nanny Og is on the floor giggling and pointing at the willy. Uh, <laughs> and operates through a series of sons that she's had She's been married many many times. Uh, she's still a blushing virgin, apparently, <laughs> if you believe that. Uh, and has a horde of family around her, and is very much like Sean. Sean. Sean, my favourite Sean. <laughs> so in my head, they've all got Somerset accents. I, <laughs> I just basically, I just, I transport myself home, and I'm like, ah. <laughs> Like Nanny Ogg's just generally like drunk as well and rowdy and I love her. Isn't but I Sean, love them all. But... Isn't Sean always referred to as our Sean? Yeah. Our Sean. He's the local guy. He is, in, in fact, the, the, the local town's entire army of memory <laughs> Yes. <laughs> um, and then there's Magrat, isn't it? Completes the completes the coven it's like that lovely thing in um, Carpe Jugulum where because there's another there's another young girl around and Magrat gets married and they realise that Granny Weatherwax is gone and then it just suddenly occurs to Nanny Og she's like well actually yeah Magrat's married and is a mother now because before there was a mother a maiden and a crone and she's like well no Magrat's the mother now new girl is the maiden something where she's like no I want to be the crown <laughs> but there's so many just gorgeous lovely ideas that come from the Lankra stories and the witches ones and I can't remember which book it is it might be a Tiffany Aiken book but that lovely thing where um, Granny Weatherwax says about the fact there's only three times a woman should use her front door and she should she should be carried on all of them. And I was like, I love that. It's just such a. It's like it's not even part of the story. It's a sentence that's said one time. But you and I don't get me wrong. Pratchett does that a lot. Most of his stories have these wonderful little things, 
that aren't even plot but are just gorgeous and that is one of my favourite it's the essential. My favourites. It's so gorgeous. It is essential here in this tournament. Um, and I think we've drifted because I could go on all day about Lords and Ladies, which is one of my favourite. Oh. Um, which is a. Sh- quite a few of them are slight Shakespeare parodies. Mm. Uh, Lords and Ladies is very much a Midsummer Night's Dream parody, and Midsummer Night's Dream is one of my favourite Shakespeare's, and therefore I love Dave Ratchet, so therefore I love Lords and Ladies. And it also has elves as monsters, because elves are monsters. And they, they, they are, they're these horrible extra dimensional things that come from elsewhere and convince you that you are not what you should be, uh, and then try and eat and consume and devour you. And if you look at uh, I've gone on a tangent and I'm sorry but if you look at the actual myth about fairies they're horrifying mm. uh, you know it's, it's people being puppeted and controlled and having their will taken away or being captured captured and altered beyond all measure and the entire you know the, the basic idea of a changeling where you know this creature comes from a place beyond time beyond reality and then steals a, a, a human life and replaces it with a thing, and then eventually the thing just turns out to be made out of paper and sticks, and you're just like, yeah! Mm. Uh, and Terry Pratchett quite like, rightly hates elves, and he's trying to undo the Tolkien thing, where Tolkien's like, these are these are a manifestation of God's love, and, and, and Terry's like, well, I don't see any of that. But what I see is elves as this horrible force. That's an entirely different thing where we can kind of drift into that whole argument. Um, I read The Secret Bias recently, which is the Tolkien novel about um, the, the language of Tolkien and mm. the languages he invented, and I was looking at that and I was just going, oh man, this man thought way too much about elves, he really did. But we touched on Tiffany Aging. Yeah. Which is another, it's a subset of the, the Witches novels. Yeah. But For young adults. And part of his motivation for writing that was that he looked at the Terry Pratchett, uh, not Terry Pratchett, he looked at the, JK, the success of J.K. Rowling. And it wasn't like, he was like, I'll have a bit of that. It was more, he didn't like the message of the Harry Potter books. Because Harry is a boy with a magical destiny and everything is handed on a plate to Harry in lots of places. He has to struggle and he has to fight. Yeah. But, you know, he's he's given a big pot of cash at the start and he's given all of these things and his destiny is basically handed to him. And you can kind of see why all the characters in the Harry Potter novels resent Harry. Because yeah. it's like, you know, he's got... Whereas Tiffany is just a girl who's a bit remarkable. But she, and I, I seem to recall the first book... The Wee Free Men. The Wee Free Men is about a fairy incursion. Yeah, the knack the Fiegel that make her their queen and there isn't much she can do about it tiny, <laughs> tiny little blue men who, who, who are every single Scottish, Irish and English cliche in the book and they, they, they like ship and by, by ship they mean sheep those fluffy things that go bar and they're tiny tiny little people and what they do is they, they rustle sheep by picking them up bodily and moving them across and you know that that Mac people have arrived if the sheep stop moving backwards because they're being stolen by tiny fairies. And then Nat McFeel or the, um, the the fairy queen arrived and went, Fear me, for I am all. And the Nat McFeel, as one, turned round, dropped their trousers, uh, showed their bottoms, then showed various rude gestures, and then ran off. 
Um, so they they are the the rebels. They're they're, they're good fairies, basically. Yeah. For a given value of good, they're rowdy and drunk and horrible at the same time. So she's she's cursed with these long creatures, but she because she's essentially a witch in training, she has a natural talent for them. She gets them to behave themselves. She has a relationship with these creatures. I seem to recall the refreeman starts with her realizing that there's a horrible thing in the lake. Mm. That's going to eat children. Going to her mother's cupboard, getting the biggest, heaviest iron skillet she can. Then getting a bag of sweeties and using the bag of sweeties to lure her little brother to the river's edge. <laughs> Which, if, you, if you've ever had an elder sister, that's exactly what they do. Um, <laughs> Luring you to the edge of a river where there's a monster that might want to eat you. Yep. <laughs> Sounds like a sisterly thing to me. Um, and then, as obviously, and as, as the. Is it Jenny Green Teeth? There's a Jenny Green Teeth. Uh, rises up, which is totally properly mythology beastie, mm. rises out of the ground. She wangs it in the face with an iron skillet. Skillet, who knew? Uh, <laughs> and off it goes. And that's that's how that starts. That's Tiffany for you. Mm. Uh, and she's a, I don't want to say strong female character, she's just a strong character. Yeah. Um, and those three books are life, love, and death. Mm. Because the is Hatful of Sky is the next one, isn't it? Yeah. That's like considering I was reading that, and I was I wasn't a young adult. I was an adult, and it was actually like don't get me wrong, it was gripping. It was sim- I found it similar to the Amazing Maurice and his Educated Rodents, where I kind of I read it in a night. Which, um, if anyone is like a regular listener, I read exceptionally slowly, um, and sometimes there's a certain writing style that I can flow a bit more but that I just I couldn't it wasn't as like oh I couldn't put it down I literally couldn't conceive of the idea of not not knowing what's happening in this story um but Hatful of Sky is actually really scary and like the amazing Maurice's Educated Rodents again I was like I'm actually scared and I'm like I'm not like in a don't get it for your kids it's a brilliant story it's it's not it's not a horror they're not horror stories just the concept is actually quite a scary quite a scary idea and I was I'll, like actually gripped because I was like I need to know I would say that be okay. is a horror story it's just a horror story that's accessible for children yeah because it's about a thing that te- that vips out everything that you are and makes you into a, a thing but actually what it is is it's an enormous metaphor for identity yay um <laughs> But again, Terry Pratchett never whacks you over the head with that, does he? No. He never goes, he never goes. Bang! You should, you should definitely be. You know, it's it's, it's more. He talks about identity. He talks about growing up, and that's the the Hatfield guy's about growing up. Wintersmith is about sex. Yeah, Wintersmith is like the the coming of age story, isn't it? Um, kind of yeah, sexual awakening. She she accidentally she she Wintersmith she accidentally dances gets in the dance between mm. summer and winter. And the the natural force of winter goes. Oh, who is this young lady? Oh, hello. It's basically the Peter Pan thing, isn't it? Like a, a guy holding a girl hostage <laughs> <laughs> until until she loves him. Um, but like, which is what what the end what the end point of the Wintersmith wanted. 
It's um, a dysfunctional relationships, which is <laughs> what happens when you don't know how relationships work, is you cock it up terribly. Uh, <laughs> and you end up with a mess. And it's only when other people turn around and go, no, it's not supposed to work like that. No, 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 calm down. Right, okay, here's, just read this. And that's what Wintersmith is kind of for. It's like, you know, if, if you have someone in your life who is about to start looking at boys or girls or, or what have you, then you just go, here's a terrible book, you should read all these because they're amazing. And also, if you have any questions, ask it, don't, don't ask me. <laughs> and then there's. Um, no, don't. Yeah. Uh, and, then, and then there's the, the last book in that particular series as well and that's, which is, that's the end of that one there's I Shall Wear well no there's I Shall Wear Midnight oh of course yeah sorry I was thinking elsewhere I forgot okay. about I Shall Wear Midnight well it's interesting because I Shall Wear Midnight and The Shepherd's Crown bookend to each other because I Shall Wear Midnight is about taking responsibility for your actions and growing up and following your career but The Shepherd's Crown, which is about death, is heavily, heavily foreshadowed all the way through. And the reason that I was getting a bit emotional, the reason I'm getting a bit emotional, again, in case you haven't worked it out, is because The Shepherd's Crown is the last book that Terry Pratchett wrote, and then he passed away. So it's a book about death, but it's also written by someone who just died. So it's very powerful. Mm. Uh, in context um, so we've done the Tiffany Aitken books yeah uh, um, they are brilliant like so don't get me wrong I think that Terry Pratchett that all the Discworld novels are accessible to young adults but it was kind of I, I, I like that there are, these were actually genuinely targeted that way but because it's Pratchett all of his books are readable whoever you are um, I think yeah I think they did really well at that I think we should definitely come back to the rest of Terry Pratchett I'm not sure. do, you know what we've, do you know what we've not done the interview we should do the interview uh, coming up next uh, lovely author interview Dan Abner welcome to Brave New Words well thank you for having me you have a new book coming out what can you tell us about it please uh, The Wheel is a book I'm writing for Golands uh, and it's uh, an original fantasy novel that uh, uh, an idea I've had for a while now that I've been given the opportunity to write for them and I'm very looking forward to it, uh, it, it, it uh, it's being out there for people to appreciate it's um, um, uh, it's sort of uh, I, I guess in very broad strokes it's very it's sort of heroic fantasy sword and sorcery type thing but I'm trying to find a very different take on it and it, to, to employ a lot of ideas that I've had stacked up over the over the years sort of uh, unusual takes on the way that sort of thing might work um so so yes it's a uh, it's uh, it's it's something i've been been wanting to write for a very long time you're better known for your science fiction but lately you've taken to writing fantasy including stuff like masters of the universe why is that um, well, I'm interested in both. Uh, obviously, I, apparently, I have some kind of aptitude for science, science fiction, which is is lovely. But uh, it doesn't mean to say that I, I think I think the, the to me the, the the distinctions between the two blur quite considerably. And uh, and sometimes it's a matter of writing something for a change to uh, to exercise different different parts of the imagination, which uh, which um, uh, fantasy, for instance, does. Um, and and also in terms of comics, I think it's also a matter of. Uh, of, of interesting jobs being offered to you. Uh, when, when I was offered Master of the Universe, to, to use your example, the um, 
having started out at Marvel UK in the 80s and written just about every possible franchise you could imagine, like Ghostbusters and Transformers and stuff like that, Master of the Universe was about the only one that I'd never written. Uh, so when DC asked me to have a go at it, I went, oh, that'll be fun. It'll be like the old days, and it'll be like... It'll be, the one, it'll be the one thing that I hadn't done. But it actually turned out to be an incredibly enjoyable job. I mean, really much more enjoyable than I anticipated. Uh, Mattel were brilliant in supporting uh, uh, the, the comic in terms of uh, continuity and making sense of their vast and complex world. And the reception was immense. So, so I kind of channeled my, my Warhammer type of epic Warhammer as opposed to Warhammer 40,000 type of fantasy into that and, uh, and was allowed to tell big stories. And, uh, and enjoyed it immensely, and I couldn't believe uh, what an enormously successful comic it was. Why so much tie-in fiction? Um, I know there is a certain stigma attached to the idea of, uh, of, of work for hire and, 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 uh, and tie-in work, but actually some of the most interesting uh, areas to work in are... Particularly as a you know, as a, just as a professional writer, you get an opportunity to write in something that you perhaps really enjoy or appreciate, like Doctor Who or Star Trek and something like that. Why wouldn't you do that sort of thing? In, in comics, weirdly, which is my, really my starting point as my in my career, um, uh, uh, writing say Batman or The Punisher or whatever it is is essentially tie-in work. Uh, it, people don't think about it like that in the comics industry. That is an aspirational thing. You want to write, you know, get an opportunity to write one of the big characters. Uh, for a while to make your mark on it, so it's it, it's sort of it's sort of second nature. Uh, in other areas, it is considered to be more sort of, um, uh, as I say, stigmatised. As, as, and I think I think well, no, the people. The reason these things are big, big successful franchise universes is because a lot of people love them. So there's a ready-made audience. If you can come in there and treat it with respect and and do it seriously, and 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 you know, it, you, you're you're writing something that people want to read, which is the the point of being a writer. Uh, and I've always enjoyed that challenge. I don't ever think, you know, I'm sort of somehow sort of um, uh, uh, slumming it writing, writing, writing franchise fiction compared to my own original stuff, which is, of course, much more important than uses much more expensive words. It's not like that. Every job is, you know, a job that I take seriously and I enjoy very much. And, and, to, and to sort of nail the feeling of Warhammer 40,000 or Doctor Who or whatever it is and, and to get that out there and get people to go, that was a great example about it, fitting perfectly into the universe is to me the, uh, you know, a great compliment in terms, of, in terms of your ability as a writer. So, so I, I've never noticed that stigma. I think the stigma is disappearing these days, uh, but I, I, just, it's just, it, I, I enjoy doing it, so, so I, I don't make the distinction. So you've signed an exclusive deal with DC recently. Yeah, it was very nice of them to offer that. I'd, I'd, um, obviously, over the years, I've worked for just about every uh, comic publisher one way or another, and... Um, uh, about ten years ago, I was exclusive at Marvel for a while. It's just a fun thing to do if you're if you're working with a company particularly well, and they've got lots of things they want you to do. It's it's it is kind of a compact to to secure your your good offices as a as a writer, but also it shows their a faith and um, uh, a faith in your ability to deliver. And um, I've done some some good fun things for Marvel recently, and also some good fun things for Dark Horse as well. But but the things I was work, working on for for DC particularly. The series Titans Hunt, which was a sort of paved the way to their big rebirth event, was um, was well received. They really liked what I was doing, and 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 they invited. First of all, they invited me the opportunity to to carry on with Titans and to take over Aquaman. And they gave me these two big responsibilities. And they they told me it was going to run into the rebirth event, and I would be sort of in charge of both of those as writer, uh, which was a 
which was great. And on the back of that, they said, you know, you could be exclusive with us if you wanted to. Uh, uh, we'd very much like to have you. And, 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 it, and it fitted. Uh, it does mean that I can't work for the um, other American major publishers for the course of the contract. My work for 2000 AD is not affected because it's a UK and it's a very different marketplace. Um, and there are a few uh, exceptions written to the contract to allow me to finish doing or work on things that are, are particular to me, uh, create our own projects with, with different people. Uh, and, of course, the, 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 they wouldn't be so churlish to not allow me to finish working on things that I've already started. But it means that I'm sort of... It, it, it's very nice to have that relationship. It's, uh, it was... Um, it made sense, and like I said, it, 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 it shows it, it, to a freelance writer often uh, working at a distance from a big publisher. It's a nice way of feeling that a publisher values you and and uh, and, and has a connection to you. So, uh, so in terms of my DC work, um, Titans, which which launched last week as a new ongoing book, which follows on from what I was doing in Titans Hunt, Aquaman, which is uh, getting huge rave reviews as well, and. Uh, Lovely to be working on a, one of their major characters. I'm also working on Earth 2 for them, which um, uh, uh, was a book that they put me on to sort of, as it were, rescue it. And, and we're now enjoying some great acclaim on that. So they're keeping me very nice and busy. Some have described your work as grim dark. Would you agree with that assessment? Uh, well, going back to what I was saying about working in franchise fiction earlier on, you, you when, when a job comes along, you write to order you write you write what is appropriate to the thing that you're doing so so the, the material that i wrote for master of the universe was as far as i was concerned appropriate to what they wanted on master of the universe and similarly with dc there's there's research there's capturing the tone of the book i think certainly writing them there's a very different tone to titans than there is to aquaman than there is to earth 2 and, and 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 you know in the same way that i would deploy a different tone if i was working for marvel on guardians of the galaxy or hercules or whatever so it's it is very much a, a case of of, of of channeling that professional ability to 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 write the appropriate to the thing to to hit the target you've been offered, um, and I don't find that a particular difference. Um, uh, I have got to obviously indulge in a very sort of grim and dark tone when I'm doing Warhammer, um, but that's because that's what's appropriate to that. It's an atmosphere that I can capture fairly well, um, and in some respects. Right, working on things like Titans or Guardians of the Galaxy is a is a breath of fresh air from being in that kind of environment all the time. It's nice to to vary those things. So it's just as far as I'm concerned, it's just a matter of employing the the appropriate professional tools to get the to get the material to work correctly. Currently doing an awful lot of very cool stuff for 2008, including Kingdom. Can we expect to see more? Many more fantastic uh, stories for Sinister Dexter in the works and and Kingdom, which you mentioned, Gene Hackman, Gina Hackman. Uh, that's 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 going to return for another series. At the moment, I'm I'm working on um, Grey Area for 2018, which is published at the moment, very well received. And Brink, which is a uh, a brand new series that I'm doing with Ian Kalbar. He and I've worked on uh, New Dead Wardians and uh, Wild's End, and it, that's that's we were trying something very different there, and and it seems to have been uh, extremely excitedly received by the audience uh, because it's got a very different tone and style. And also with Phil Winslade, I'm working on a series called Lawless for the for the magazine, which is now into its third third run, and that's a, a Dread Universe story about a female judge, and that also is uh, uh, one of my favourite things to work on. Phil's work is brilliant. Um, working with people like Phil and Ian is just a, a real treat. So um, we uh, again get, get, we do these things, and and we look for what sort of reception we're getting, and when the readers are saying we really love this, can we have some more? We do some more. That's the it's a very simple agreement. If we do something and people go, no, that's terrible, we'll think of something else to do. 
Your version of Guardians of the Galaxy is the version that made it to the silver screen, and you recently wrote Masters of the Universe, which was infamously turned into a movie back in the day. Can we expect any movie-related work anytime soon? Yes, there is. Unfortunately, I can't talk about it at the moment because I have an NDA, but yes, there is. Um, but, uh, but yeah, no, so Brink definitely um, uh, was something where we, we, we had a, an idea for a story and then we thought about how to, to construct the, the type of storytelling. And I wanted very naturalistic, authentic feel. And I didn't want it overloaden, overladen with um, uh, unnecessary exposition and the usual sort of tricks you do to, to world build. So we worked out ways of, of world building as we went along and keeping everything very sort of... Uh, well, I feel very, very authentic, which means a greater density in terms of panel count and a, uh, hing- uh, carrying everything with, with, with dialogue the way it would be in a movie. And that's, that's great. It's a really enjoyable way to work in a very different way. It's sort of, it's sort of forgetting for a moment or certainly twisting for a moment some of the basic conventions of, um, of comic, comic storytelling and keeping it very stripped down. And, uh, and, yes, that's something that I want to pursue further by actually writing for... Uh, for the screen and, and channeling it in that particular direction. Many of our listeners are fans of the Warhammer 40,000 world and Black Library in general. Will we see um, more Gaunt's Ghosts, more Beckwin? Will you dip your toe into the new Age of Sigma setting? Uh, well, uh, my, my main concern with Warhammer, I've t- taken a little break there for, for various reasons, not all, not all of which are mine, but, but yes, I've, obviously I have a great great connection to the Warhammer universe and I love that work very much and uh, and uh, and now things are slightly straighter I'm I'm finally getting getting the next Gaunt's Ghost novel uh, back on back on track which is uh, has been delayed like I said for various various reasons not not just my own reasons um, from there I definitely want to 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 finish this arc of the Gaunt's Ghost books and I want to finish the the Beckwin trilogy that you mentioned um, and I'd also like to contribute again to the Horus Heresy. The Age of Sigmar is very appealing, but, but given the fact that a novel is a large thing and they need to be scheduled carefully, I think those things are my absolute priorities, is to, is to really sort of um, uh, do justice to things I'm already writing before I branch out to something new, um, particularly with the Horus Heresy, which is now reaching a, 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 very, a very crucial end stage of its, uh, of its existence. Having been part of that at the very beginning and contributed it all the way through, I would hate to miss out on I'm contributing to the end as well. I'm a personally a big fan of the Horus Heresy and the Inquisitor stories, so I'm really keen to find out if the Keeler image will be with us any time soon, because you know it's a tie-in between those two. Uh, funnily enough, yes. Uh, I can't go into detail, but but uh, but certainly that uh, that is not as far off as it used to be. Uh, so 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 as they say, watch this space. If you could preserve one book and have it last until the sun dies out, what would it be? Are we talking about somebody else's book? We're talking about one of my favourite books. Um, goodness me. I think my favourite books will probably last that long anyway. Um, uh, oh, very, 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 very tricky question. My, fav- my all-time favourite book is Dandelion Wine by Red Bradbury, so I'd probably have to pick that. But I'm very, very fond of, uh, of several others. But, yeah, I'd, I'd pick that, Red Bradbury. Red Bradbury is an author who desire- deserves to, to, to last a very long time. If you had one piece of advice for the 16-year-old version of yourself, what would it be? Uh, I would advise them to write. Write and read. It's the advice I would give to I mean, I, I, think, I think back at that 
back at that age, I want I knew I wanted to write or I wanted to do something creative, and writing was the most likely thing. And I did write, and I, I sort of I sort of followed my own advice that I'm giving now. However, I would I would I would I would urge my 16 year old self to do that even more, uh, not for any particular purpose, but other than to to um, to train the writing muscles and, and just to write anything and everything I could think of and, 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 and sort of get myself into that, into that uh, opportunity. I think, I, think, I think a lot of people who at an early age want to write hesitate from writing. They think it's something they will aspire to. But actually, the more you can write, the more you can uh, clear the dust off the shelves and get yourself in a position where when, when that great job comes along, you're ready to write it. Uh, and also, I think um, you sort of underestimate the... You sort of wait for the opportunity, I suppose. You wait, you wait for something to come along, assuming that you're going to be ready to do it when it comes along. Whereas if you've been writing for a long time, and writing a lot, even if that stuff never sees the light of day, it's, it's trained you to be able to take that thing on. Uh, and I think that's, that's what I would do. I would urge myself to, 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 not, not, to take it more seriously, even though I had no serious outlet for it. And I think that would, be a, would have been a great, a great apprenticeship back then. Some silly quick-fire questions... So first up, the Kraken or the Leviathan? Um, the Kraken. But uh, speaking as an Aquaman writer, the Qua- the Kraken. Dragons or spaceships? Spaceships, without hesitation. <laughs> Magic swords or blaster pistols? Oh no, that's really difficult. Um... Uh, probably magic swords, I have to say, but that's probably because I'm writing the wheel at the moment. But yes, magic swords. I love swords. Serpent men or vampires? Uh, <laughs> uh, I'm very fond of serpent men, so I'll go with serpent men. And finally, truth or beauty? Uh, oh, truth, truth. I think truth, uh, truth, truth is truth is the harder one to uh, to both deliver and appreciate. So yeah, always always take the challenge. Dan Abner, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for appearing on Brave New Words. Thank you very much indeed. Starburst Radio, the greatest radio show in the universe. Every Wednesday, 9pm till 11pm. Exclusive to Fab Radio International. So, uh, that incoherent rambling from us. Thank you very much to the author. If, by the by, you want to get in touch with us and you have a book you want to promote please get in touch with us at Radio Bookworm on Twitter. You can also find us via the Secret Book Club on the Facebooks. We are the Brave New Words Super Secret Book Club. Uh, you should pop onto the group, join the group, and also tell all your friends about the group because we are amazing. Uh, you can also get in touch with us via letters at starburstmagazine.com. I've been your host, Ed Fortune. I've been Ross. I've been Dan. I've been Anne. And see you again next week. Don't forget to tell all your friends and like, share, subscribe. Mm-hmm.